You're listening to the Touch Em Up Podcast. I'm your host, Double Lemon. On today's episode, we have UFC 274, Oliveira versus Gaethje, preview predictions and analysis. UFC 274 takes place this Saturday, May 7th, from the Footprint Center in Phoenix, Arizona. And in the main event of the evening, you have a clash for the ages for the UFC Lightweight Championship between the reigning defending UFC Lightweight Champion, Charles Dobronx Oliveira, and the number one ranked UFC Lightweight, and the number one finisher in the UFC's Lightweight division, in my opinion, in Justin the Highlight Gaethje. In the co-main event of the evening for the Women's Strawweight Championship, you have the first ever UFC Women's Strawweight Championship fight getting its rematch between the champion, the reigning defending champion under the head coaching of Trevor Whitman and Thug Rose Namajunas, defending against the number one ranked contender in the division in Carla Cookie Monster Esparza. So without any further ado, let's get this started and step into the ring. All right, everybody, let's get this started. UFC 274, Oliveira versus Gaethje, Namajunas versus Esparza, Chandler versus Ferguson. Now, I, I already messed up. We're already off to a great start. I said that Esparza was ranked number one in the division. She's actually ranked number two in the number two contender in the women's straw weight division. Number one, I believe, is the former champion in Magnum Zhong Wei Li. And uh, Nami Yunus and Esparza, it's a fight that took place, I believe, back in 2014. It might have been 2015. Let me see. We'll pull it up. Give me a second. So the original fight took place on December 12th, 2014 at the Tough 20 finale. So 2014 to 2022, almost eight years in the making. The first ever UFC Women's Strawweight Championship fight in the Tough 20 finale, and now the two competitors in the finale of that show, where Carla Esparza would go on to become the first ever women's strawweight champion by defeating Thug Rose Namajunas by a third-round submission via rear naked choke, will be rematched. Um, I, I'm not going to talk about that, obviously, until we get to the main event, or until we get to the co-main in the main event, but... I mean, man, it, it, it kind of, the story writes itself. It's a fight that I think should have happened a while ago when it just didn't, you know, you know, maybe it would have happened when Rose fought Joanna, but Joanna came in and beat the brakes off Carla Esparza. There'd been multiple opportunities where I think the fight could have happened, whether it was for a title or not, but now it makes sense. Esparza on a win streak, Nami Yunus, the defending champ after getting her belt back after losing it via that slam to Jessica Andrade comes back. Beats Andrade in a rematch, beats Wei Li in the first fight via that first round lead head kick, and then wins the rematch via a all-out war in a decision. And um, now is the champion defend one title defense, going for her second title defense in this fight. And then obviously the featured bout of the evening in the UFC's lightweight division, you've got the number five ranked Iron Michael Chandler going up against the number seven ranked fighter, former UFC interim lightweight champion, former best lightweight in the world, or who was considered to be one of the best lightweights in the world, still probably is considered one of the best lightweights to ever do it in the boogeyman, Tony El Kukui Ferguson. Um, 
that triple header right there is enough to sell you just about anything you need to be sold on this pay-per-view. Uh, Chandler versus Ferguson, banger for as long as it lasts. Nami Yunus and Esparza, story, first strawweight women's champion ever crowned between these two. Now they're rematching. Carla's on a win streak. Nami Yunus, the defending champ. I mean, I already talked about it. It is what it is. Great fight. Oliveira wins the title after knocking out Michael Chandler in the second round at UFC 262 after overcoming adversity in the first round being dropped and almost knocked out cold. And then he goes in and he beats Dustin Poirier defending the championship in a fight where he got hurt again with a right hook, um, two times with the right hook, one time with the straight, but got dropped with the right hook each time. Um, and Gaethje goes in against Habib. Loses the fight. Does decent in the first round before he got taken down. Landing the low kicks. Trying to land that left hook. Land that, trying to land that uppercut on Habib. Didn't really work out for him once he got on the ground. It was a fish out of water. Comes in against Michael Chandler. Who Oliveira beat to become the UFC lightweight champion. After the retirement of Habib Nurmagomedov. And they go to war. Three rounds. Gaethje drops Chandler. And um, you know takes over in the second and in the third and wins that fight, and probably the fight of the year. In my opinion, it was the fight of the year for 2021, and just a fantastic fight. Number one versus the current champion, Gaethje and Oliveira. Phenomenal fight. But we're going to get it started on the prelims. We're only going to break down one prelim for this card because there's just a lot to discuss. But before we get into that, before we get into that, let me let me just, let me just talk to you a little bit. I will probably have a recap episode breaking down the UFC fight night, UFC Vegas 53, font, font versus Vera. But before we do that, can we just go out of my way or can I go out of my way to at least be humble here and say that that was one of the shittiest nights of picks I've ever had in the history of the podcast. If people listen to those breakdowns and that um, predictions and never wanted to hear from me again because of how bad that night was, I wouldn't blame you because it was probably, if not number one, the number two worst fight predictions I've ever had. I rarely ever go negative where I get more wrong than I get right. Sometimes I'll get close, maybe like six and four, you know, uh, I don't know, five and two, five and three, yeah, four and three. Like there's been times where it's like that, but rarely Rarely do I ever go negative. And this fight card, I think I was one in four. Let's see. I want to go back to it um, and pull it up. We'll go to, can it pull up past events? Yeah, we'll go past event. So we broke down the prelims, right? So I broke down one prelim, I think. Oh, no, we only did main card. We only did main card. Uh, so we completely crapped ourselves on Mearshart and Jotko, completely shit the bed. Mearshart lost pretty dominantly, decision unanimous, three rounds, Jotko gets the job done there. Boom, starting off hot. Didn't predict Elkins versus Connolly. I said Elkins would probably get it done. Um, I believe I mentioned that. If I didn't, then that's my bad. I picked Grant Dawson to win via decision. He won by submission. So we got that one. We got that one right. So right now we're one and one. We go into Feely versus Brito. Brito gets a first round knockout 41 seconds in against a guy in Andre Feely who had never been finished before. Never been finished. I picked Feely to win here, picked him to win actually by a late finish, and he gets knocked out in 41 seconds. Boom. Off to another great start. One and two. We go into the co-main event. 
I didn't break down Arlovsky versus Collier. I said I'd probably pick Arlovsky, but I'm not going to count that because I didn't predict it. Like, I broke it down. I said Arlovsky would probably win, but when I listed my predictions, I didn't really do that, so I'm not counting that. And then the main event, Font starts out hot. Kind of reminded me a little bit of Shades of the Aldo and Font fight. Starts off hot, and that left hook from Cheeto Vera was just money. I'll obviously have a detailed breakdown of this probably on the next podcast, but the left hook from Marlon Vera was money every time it landed. I mean, it hurt Rob. Um, the front kick up the middle stunned Rob a few times. Then he goes with a WWE Shawn Michaels sweet chin music with that front leg sidekick to the jaw. You know, stuns Rob Font, hurts him, almost gets him out of there. Font's face was completely busted up, just ripped to shreds. He looked like the elephant man from... Uh, I forgot the name of the movie, but if you know, you know what I'm talking about. Um, look up the Elephant Man, and you'll know exactly what I'm talking about if you compare it side by side with the picture of Font from that fight. Um, all respect to Rob Font. I've had him on the podcast. I'm real good friends, or I mean, I wouldn't say good friends, but I'm very close. Probably the closest with any fighter and coach and you know stable I've ever interviewed. I'm probably the closest with the New England cartel. Um, I'm a big fan of Rob. I I don't think I've ever picked against him on this podcast. I've been right multiple times. I, I went with my boy here, you know, ride or die. I said it could have been close. I said the later it goes, if Font can't get him out of there, can't hurt him, that Cheeto could get that damage done in the clinch with those elbows, those up elbows, getting it, getting in, making it a dirty fight. But I did not expect him to outbox Rob the longer the fight went, and that left hook was just money. Every time it landed, it was hurting him the elbows, the front kick up the middle, the teeps to the body, that front leg sidekick that he landed, the sweet chin music, like we said, shout out to the heartbreak kid, Shawn Michaels. And um, Marlon Chito Vera defeats Rob Font via unanimous decision. The best performance of Marlon Vera's career, in my opinion, I don't really think you could say it any differently. You look at the significant strikes, let me tell you something. Marlon Vera had not a single scratch on his face at the end of this fight. No bruising, no blood, no redness, no scratches, nothing. And Rob Font landed 273 strikes in the fight out of 520. Now, don't even look at the amount he threw. It was a 53% accuracy. But overall, he lands 273 strikes on Marlon Vera. And Vera looks like he just got out of bed. No damage. This guy is one of the most durable mixed martial artists on the planet. And we already knew Cheeto was tough. We knew he could take damage. We knew he could come back from it. But I didn't think we expected it to play out like this. And, you know, Vera landed 167 strikes compared to 273. Over 100 more strikes landed for Rob Font. And Font's face looked like a crimson mask. It looked like it was ripped apart. Like I said, look up the elephant man compared to Rob Font's face after the fight. And again, that's no disrespect to Rob. I'm a huge fan. I'm disappointed to see my boy go out like that. But all respect to Rob Font. He's a warrior. He's a fucking true fighter. He's a true fucking fighter. He goes in there. He puts it all on the line. He looked great in the fight. That's the thing. He got damaged. He got dropped. He got hurt more in the fight. But he looked great. He had a great performance. You know, even though he got dropped, it kind of, like I said, it reminded me a lot of the Aldo fight. He'd be winning the rounds, he'd be up on the scorecards, and he'd get hurt with a left hook, or he'd get hurt with a front kick, or he'd get hurt with that side kick. You know, that left hook was money for Vera, like we said. And um, he had so much more ability to cause damage to Rob. And again, like I said, no disrespect. And I know people will say that, and then they'll go to shit on the fighter. 
I'm not shitting on Rob Font at all. I, I have tremendous respect for the man. I think he's one of the best bantamweights in the world. Um, could that Aldo fight have taken a little bit out of him? I think it's a possibility. I think it's a possibility going in here. I thought that might have been a possibility. He had a tough weight cut. He missed weight by two pounds, but I'm not going to use that to take away from the performance of Marlon Vera. He had a great performance. Um, more than likely, will be ranked in the top five of the bantamweight division. He might be ranked in the top five right now, but I think the rankings come out on Tuesday or Wednesday, so we'll have to see how that plays out. But um, great performance from Marlon Vera here, and I'm excited to see who he gets next. I'm excited to see who Rob gets next. Um, I think that Cheeto could potentially be looking at a rematch with O'Malley. I don't want to see that fight. I think it would play out very similar to the first fight. I think Vera would beat him worse than he did the first time, and I will stand by that because I picked Marlon Vera to defeat Sean O'Malley in the first fight. I will stand by him in the second fight to defeat O'Malley again if they were to rematch. Um, I think that Vera versus Cruz is a great fight. I think Vera versus Dillashaw. But if I was making the fights for the bantamweight division right now, um, it looks like we're probably going to get Aldo versus Aljamain, which I don't really like that 100%. You know, I, I just think that Aldo, he does deserve a title shot, but I think Jan deserves a rematch. I know he got DQ'd and then he lost via decision, but a lot of people thought Peter edged out that fight. I thought he should have got the nod, but I could see how they gave it to Aljamain. It was really that first round that was, you know, the, the one in question. But the fourth and fifth was all Jan. Second and third were all Eljo. Um, it was that first round that really came into question when you go to break down the fight and who you think won. But, you know, that's how it goes. And that's just the way the cookie crumbles. Shout out to Bruce Almighty, Jim Carrey. But um, I think Rob... Should definitely take some time off. I think he'll take some time off. The New England cartel, Tyson Chartier, Jake Manini, that whole group out of out of Boston, um, they're very smart with their fighters. They did it with Kelvin Cater. He came back, looked probably the best he's ever looked against Giga Chikadze or one of the best performances he's ever had. Now he's going in against Josh Emmett in a main event of a UFC fight night, I believe, in June. I think it's June. It might be the end of May. Um, let me pull that up really quick. Uh, yeah, okay, so it's June. So Kelvin Cater versus Josh Emmett in the main event of UFC Fight Night Austin on June 18th. Kelvin coming into the fight 23-5, and five. Emmett 17 wins. Two losses in professional MMA. Great fight. Um, I like the fight stylistically, but I think Kelvin should have gotten a better opponent. Potentially a Brian Ortega. I think Kelvin versus Ortega would have been a good fight. Um, I could have seen, seen them even giving Kelvin a title shot, but um, I, I'm sure Max will probably get that next, especially after having that close rematch with Volkanovski and then coming in and beating the brakes off Kelvin Cater in a great fight and then beating... Yair Rodriguez in a great fight as well. So I'm sure it'll be Volkanovski versus Holloway next. Potentially Volkanovski versus Cejudo. Um, we'll have to see what's what's with him and him joining the um, rejoining the testing pool. So it'll be interesting to see how that goes. But Cater getting a fight against Emmett. Vera wins this fight. Phenomenal fight. If you haven't watched it, definitely go watch Font versus Vera in that main event. Um, one of the best striking battles, one of the best displays of mixed martial arts and uh, mixed martial arts striking, striking acumen in MMA, I should say, 
Um, so go out of your way to check that out if you haven't got the chance. Congratulations to Marlon Vera and Rob Font. Even in defeat, you're a motherfucking warrior. So keep your head high, and um, I can't wait to see you come back. I think Rob could potentially be looking at a Corey Sandhagen fight next. I think that's a good fight for him. I think Corey versus Rob is a decent fight. I think potentially maybe Rob versus... Oof, um, I don't know, honestly. I like Rob versus Sandhagen. I think Vera versus uh, Dillashaw is a decent fight. I think even Vera versus Sandhagen would be a good one. Vera versus Cruz. I think Jan, if he doesn't get the title shot, if they book Aldo versus Aljamain, um, which I hope they don't, then I think we're going to get Dillashaw versus Piotr Jan, and then maybe Vera versus Sandhagen, and then potentially you could do Rob Font versus, uh, let's see. Let's just do this before we get into the predictions because we're 20 minutes in almost and we're not even at the predictions. So let's see. We'll go to the rankings. UFC bantamweight division. Uh, yeah, I mean, it's tough because I, okay. So if I'm booking it, if it's what I want, I think Peter versus Aljamain three for the belt. Dillashaw versus Aldo and Sandhagen versus Vera. I like that. I think I think maybe Sandhagen versus Cruz is a good one too. I mean, it really depends. I know Vera wants that Aldo fight back. Um, but if I'm booking it, if, if I'm the matchmaker here, this is what I want. And I know I just said it, but just let me think about it for a second. So I want... Mm, <laughs> give me a second. Let me think. Let me think. Okay. All right. Hear me out here. Hear me out. El Jermaine versus Jan. Three. Dillashaw versus Aldo. Okay. Um, Sandhagen versus Cruz. And Font versus... Well, no, you can't do that, though, because... Man, this is hard. This is hard. Okay. If if Jan doesn't get the next title shot, you do Eljamain versus Aldo, Jan versus TJ, Sandhagen versus... Oh, it's so hard because, you know, where do you put Marlon Vera? I would say Vera will more than likely be ranked number five come Tuesday or Wednesday. So you put Vera there, so it would be Jan, Dillashaw, Aldo, Sandhagen, Vera. If we're going off of Marlon Vera, then I think if you don't give Elgin, if you don't give Peter the rematch, which I think they're going to do. Okay, never mind. I am so confusing right now. I'm sorry to anyone who's listening to this because it's just hard to see what they're going to do with the bantamweight division because it's not a log jam, but there's a lot of interesting matchups you can make. Let's say they go by the books. Jan versus Eljo three done. TJ versus Aldo done. Sandhagen versus Vera, done. Font versus Cruz. I think that's good. I think that's good. So Sandhagen versus Vera, Dillashaw versus Aldo, 
Jan versus Aljamain, Font versus Cruz. If I'm doing it, if we're going by books, that's what I do. If we're going off of what should happen or what we think is going to happen, then Aldo versus Aljamain, Jan versus TJ, uh, Sandhagen versus Vera, and then Font versus Cruz. I still think those matchups together are good. If Aldo gets the title shot or not. It's really just the difference is Jan either fighting Aljamain or Jan fighting TJ. Because I think either way, that's what they're going to do at 135. It's going to be one or the other. It's either Jan versus Aljo or Jan versus TJ. And I, I don't really see them going a different route in my opinion. I like Dillashaw versus Aldo. I do really like that fight. If that were to be made, I think that's a great fight. I like Cruz versus Aldo. I think you could do that one. Um, I could see either of those getting made, but what I just said is kind of how I see it playing out at the top of that division. But forget about it. Let's get to the predictions and what we actually came here to discuss. All right. So UFC 274, Oliveira versus Gaethje. We're going to kick it off with our one prelim breakdown for this podcast. Excuse me, and it comes in the UFC flyweight division between top 10 ranked contenders. You got the number six ranked Brandon Raw Dog Roy Vol fighting out of Factory X Muay Thai under head coach Mark Montoya, going up against the number nine ranked Matt Danger Schnell, who comes into this fight with a record of 15 wins and five defeats. Number six versus number nine. Whoever wins this fight more than likely will be ranked number five or four in the UFC flyweight division and get the title shot after Kaikara France. That's how I think it's going to play out. So breaking down this fight, you got Orthodox versus Southpaw, Roy Vall, Southpaw, lead right hand, power in the back, left leg, left, left hand, you know, going up against the Orthodox fighter in Schnell, who's lead, lead left hand, Straight right hand, you know, power coming from the right side. The, the main weapon in every Southpaw versus Orthodox matchup is getting your lead foot to the outside of the lead foot of your opponent. It is a battle of the angle to get the angle by getting that outside foot. If you get that outside foot, you're going to, one, get the angle, and number two, be out of the range to land for your opponent to land their power hand, which is their back hand. And it's going to be at an awkward angle. It's going to be harder because you're going to get jammed up if you do try to throw that straight hand. You're not going to have the angle that you need. So whoever gets the outside foot is who dominates and controls the striking on the feet. Now, both of these guys are great jujitsu artists. You've seen Matt Schnell, you know, go up against, uh, who was the opponent that he got this finish on? I think it was Eric Shelton. He got that arm in guillotine and then switched it to a triangle choke by holding onto the head and then obviously leaning back, throwing the legs up and getting the triangle. I believe it's Eric Shelton who he got that over. Uh, you know what? It was Jordan Espinoza. It was Jordan Espinoza. Let me check that out just to make sure, but I was wrong. It's Jordan Espinoza, I think. Let me see. Go back to 2016. He lost to Font, Marco Beltran. Hector Sandoval, not so in a way. Yeah, Jordan Espinoza. Okay, so I wasn't right at first, but he got that first-round submission over Jordan Espinoza. Um, he's also gotten a submission over Luis Smolka. He lost via KO to Alexandre Pantoja. Had a couple fights fall out with Tyson Nam. 
Um, back in 2020, he didn't get to compete. 2021, he had a couple fights fall out again against Alex Perez, and then he fought against um, Rogerio Bontanin. Bontanin won a decision pretty decisively, but apparently it was overturned into a no contest. I think Bontanin either tested for marijuana or tested for some form of performance enhancers, and he fell out. Or I'm sorry, the fight was overturned, but but Bontarine did get a decision in that fight. Um, Schnell trains out of American Kickboxing Academy and American Top Team. It says both. Um, I'm not 100% sure where he trains out of permanently. I think it's American Top Team because I believe he trains a little bit with... Um, okay, no. So present, he trains at uh, Combat Sports Academy and AKA. So Combat Sports Academy and American Kickboxing Academy. If... That's wrong, then forgive me, but Albuquerque, New Mexico, and then also Combat Sports Academy. So he must train at two separate gyms. But he got he lost that fight to Bontarine, which was his last fight, but obviously it got overturned. Um, was supposed to fight Alex Perez at UFC 271, and the fight got canceled. So from since 2019, Matt Schnell, well, we'll go 2020 because he didn't have any canceled in 2019. Since 2020, Matt Schnell has had... Five fight cancellations. Three against Alex Perez, most recently, right? Yeah, three against Alex Perez. It was supposed to be at UFC Fight Night Brunson versus Till, then UFC 269, and then most recently at UFC 271. All cancellations. Um, not Matt Schnell's fault for this most recent one, but he still came in, made weight. Um, didn't fight, but he did make weight. And then against Tyson Nam, he had a fight cancellation at UFC, let's see, UFC Fight Night Watterson versus Hill in September, and then UFC Fight Night Thompson versus Neal. So that is five fight cancellations for Matt Schnell. So we haven't seen him compete much. From since 2019, well, so we'll start in 2020. Since 2020, Matt Schnell has competed one time. So in two years, he's competed once. This will be his second time in three years, if we're counting 2020. So 2020, 2021, 2022. This will be his third time in three years that he's competed. So not very active. Now, Roy Vall, on the other hand, if we look at him, we'll pull that up. Roy Vall, on the other hand, has been pretty active, if I do say so myself. Um, he lost via submission to Alexandre Pantoja, defeated Rogerio Bontarine via decision. Um, it's not showing everything here. I believe he beat Tim Elliott in his UFC debut, which was a big win for him against a guy who was a former title challenger at the time, probably ranked in the top five of the division when he got that win. Uh, here, let's see. So yeah, he came into the UFC at UFC on ESPN nine Woodley versus Burns and defeated Tim Elliott via a arm triangle choke in the second round. Then he comes in against Kai Carr of France, submits him in the second round, 48 seconds in with a guillotine choke that fight back and forth. Roy Vall gets dropped with an overhand, right? As Kai Carr France rushes in, Roy Vall's going down. He's falling all over the place. Boom, rocks him with a spinning elbow. He catches Kai Carr France with a, with a knee up the middle, which is one of Roy Vall's best weapons, and then locks up that arm in. 
guillotine choke. Then he comes in and loses to Brandon Moreno, but it was a freak injury. He got taken down and his shoulder popped out of place. And they called it a TKO at four minutes and 59 seconds of the first round, but it was a controversial loss. Then he comes in against Pantoja, looks great, is beating him up on the feet, picking him apart. And then Pantoja just found a way to scramble on the ground against one of the other best jujitsu artists in the division in Royval and um, get this back and get the rear naked choke. But in a fight that Royval was winning pretty handily, he was dominating that fight up until that scramble where Pantoja found his way to the back and got the submission. And then he comes in against Bontanin and gets the split decision. But I think a lot of people thought that um, Royval won pretty decisively, really scrambling on the ground, never really settles into a position. Those scrambles and the recklessness of Royval can get him into positions where he doesn't want to be, sometimes leaving his chin exposed on the feet to get hit with a good shot or leaving himself open for a submission like against Pantoja where he was just a little bit too scrambly, got himself out of position, gave up his back, and got submitted with the rear naked choke. Going in against Matt Schnell, we just talked about it. Been a little bit inactive. Not his fault. A lot of canceled fights coming in. Um, loses the fight to Bontanin. Gets out grappled. Gets out positioned. Uh, taken down a lot. Um, just kind of got dominated by Bontanin. I, I don't really think that there was much that Matt Schnell did there. Um, he has a decent left hook. He's got really good speed in his hands. That's something I will say. Um, he seemed to have made a lot of improvements in his striking. He likes to move his head a little bit off the center line. He'll stand in that orthodox stance. He'll kind of fake with the right hand, move his head to the left, roll underneath, move his head to the right, and then go back to the middle. So he's kind of like making a square slash a circle with his head. He's kind of going up, left, down, pull back, right, slip the other way. It's a lot of faking with the right hand, fake, fake, get the get him to think that you're going to throw it, then you just kind of move your head forward, lean forward, give the illusion of distance, slip left, roll underneath, slip right, Lift the rear hand up. You're slipping. You're rolling. But when the combinations are coming at Schnell, there are points where he will slip off the center line. There are points where he will pull back and slip. But it's probably 20 25% of the time. A lot of the time, if you throw a combination or if you throw a straight shot, a hook, if you throw it at him, his head stays on the center line, and he's normally open to get hit on the chin. That's something you'll notice. There's a lot of Matt Schnell's head movement. He's gotten better in his last fight against Bontanin. He did move out of the way of a lot of shots, pull away, roll, slip. But a lot of the time, if you time it well, during a combination when he throws the 1-2, two, the one two five two, the lead uppercut right hand, which, like I said, he's got a lot of speed. He's got a lot of power. He cracked um, – Pantoja with a left hook and almost put him out and then got TKO'd because he got hit on the chin and just, just hurt really bad because he leaves his chin exposed. But if you time him with a good shot coming in, his chin's usually up in the air and he's coming forward just with his chin in the air, throwing the fast hands. He's kind of going speed over technique and defensive responsibility. Reckless abandonment due to the speed. He's got good technique. He's got decent low kicks, good punches. His technique is not bad. It's just his ability to keep his chin down and to move his head off the center line is not the best in the middle of the combinations. When he's throwing, it's not the best. Before he throws, before he goes to work, moving prior to the combination is good. Moving in the combination and moving after the combination, not the best. And I think that's something that can get him in trouble against a guy like Roy Vall. And 
I honestly think Roy Vall has better jiu-jitsu and better submission ability than Matt Schnell. I know he's good. I know he's got good jiu-jitsu. But I think the scrambling ability, the ability to work from X-guard, no pun intended with with Factory X, but the ability to work from X-guard, work from leg locks, and constantly scramble and move around and, and shrimp his hips, you know, get up to a hip, work the X-guard, work the rubber guard, you know, work the butterfly guard, go for leg locks, go for sweeps, go for submissions, go for always trying to move position to position, position before submission, always going for things. His activity off of his back, his scrambling ability, I believe is head and shoulders above Matt Schnell. Now, could he get out of position and leave himself open for a submission like he did against um, Alexandre Pantoja? He can, but I don't see that happening. Could he get cracked by one of the punches of Matt Schnell? Yeah, he hits hard. Matt Schnell hits hard, and he hits fast. That's usually a recipe for disaster, but I think the right hook of Royval is very good. The jab, especially the jab off the southpaw stance, the jab into the right hook against an orthodox fighter to keep that outside foot is going to be the weapon that I think we're going to see Royval use a lot. Raw Dog's going to be popping that jab, fake the jab, throw the right hook, fake the jab, right hook, teep kick up the middle, right hook, left body kick, Right hook, knee up the middle as Schnell changes levels. I think that we're going to see the striking ability and the defensive ability with the footwork and the movement and pulling back and landing the combinations at awkward angles is going to take over in the second, take over in the third. Um, I'm going to go with a finish for Royval here. I'm going to go with a knee up the middle as Schnell um, tries to step in. I think he steps in, lowers his level. Boom. I think Royval kind of faints, gets gets Schnell to lower his level just slightly and comes up the middle with a knee like he caught Kai Carr of France. I think he catches him with that knee, jumps on him, goes for a TKO, doesn't get it, takes the back and locks up the rear naked choke to get the submission. So my pick is Brandon Raw Dog Royval, the number six ranked flyweight, to defeat the number nine ranked Matt Danger Schnell via a second round rear naked choke submission after dropping him with that knee up the middle on the feet. All right, and now we move to the main card and the main card opener in the lightweight division between two veterans of the sport. This is like if there was a UFC Legends League or a UFC OG League, this would be one of the marquee fights. In the lightweight division, you've got Donald Cowboy Cerrone, who comes into this fight with a record of 36 victories, 16 defeats, and two no contests, going up against Joe Lozon, who comes into this fight with a record of 28 victories and 16 defeats. I believe he used to be have a nickname of Joe J-Lo Lozon. He might still have a nickname. Um, if I'm wrong, then, you know, forgive me. But let's see if I can pull it up. See, Joe Lozon. Nah, see, he doesn't have the nickname anymore, but I believe he they used to call him Joe J Lo Lozon. So if I'm wrong, you know, then I'm wrong. But I feel like he had, yeah, Joe J Lo Lozon. I was right. He did used to have that nickname, and he comes into this fight with a record of 28 victories and 16 defeats. So each man, each man has the same amount of defeats, 16 16 losses. You know, it's a lot of losses, but wins, uh, Cowboy has eight more wins. Two no contests, which, you know, that's two more fights to his name, but eight more wins than Joe Lozon. Now, if you look at the stats, I mean, honestly, I'm just going to come out and say it. 
both of these guys are at the tail end of their career. I, I think that Donald Cowboy Cerrone has a little bit more left in the tank compared to a, J, a Joe Lozon, but you've always got to be worried about Cowboy Cerrone in that first round because you never know. He always comes out a little bit gun-shy in that first round, and that's when you can get him out of there. He's been finishing the first round a lot. It's happened multiple times throughout his career. He almost got finished again in the first round against Robbie Lawler, but he was able to come back. And even though he lost that fight, I count that Robbie Lawler fight as one of the best performances of Cerrone's career. I think in recent years, we're not going to count when he was on that crazy tear at lightweight before he fought RDA and then ended up losing you know, for the championship. But when he went into that second run, you know, right before he lost to Tony Ferguson at UFC 238, I think the performance against Ally Quinta is one of the best of his career. I think that win over um, Alexander Hernandez was a great fight. And I think that the victory or the loss to, to Robbie Lawler, even though it was a losing effort, one of his best fights. And I think he did very well in that fight. He got Robbie Lawler down. I'll wrestle them. You know, came back from adversity, struck with him on the feet. I, I That's one of my favorite cowboy fights is the fight against Robbie Lawler at, I believe, UFC 2. Ooh, was it 2? What what fight card was that on? UFC 240. I think it was the fight where... where um. John Jones and Cormier had their rematch. So what was that? UFC 214? Yeah, that was it. UFC 214, I believe. And I did not look that up, just in case, because you guys can't see me. Um, he When he fought Robbie Lawler at UFC 214. That's one of my favorite fights. But um, you look at Joe, Joe Lozon, and he's been out of MMA for a long time. And then he came back and defeated Joe, or I'm sorry, Jonathan J.S.P. Pierce. His last fight, October 18th, 2019, UFC Fight Night, Reyes versus Weidman. So, you know, you're looking at almost a three-year layoff for Joe Lozon. Prior to that, he had three back-to-back-to-back losses. A decision to Stevie Ray. Um, it says Stephen Ray, but I believe it's Stevie Ray. A, de- a majority decision loss. A TKO in the first round to Clay Guida. And a TKO doctor stoppage at the end of the second round. Um, at UFC 223, Habib versus Iaquinta. So he fought in 2018, one time in 2018, one time in 2019, and then hasn't fought since then. Now, if you look at Donald Cowboy Cerrone, we're just going to pull it up like this. So give me one second. His last fight came against... Alex Morano at UFC on ESPN 24, Rodriguez versus Watterson on May 8th. So almost a year since Cowboy has fought. I think that's going to rejuvenate him a bit. You know, it's been three years since Lozon has fought, almost three years. Um, It's been about a year since we've seen Cowboy in there. At the day of the fight, it's actually going to be 364 days since we've seen Cowboy in the octagon. He lost to Alex Morano via first-round TKO. Prior to that, a no contest um, to Nico Price. Uh, it was a draw, but it says no contest. I believe something happened, but it, w- it was scored a draw. Um, prior to that, a loss to Anthony Pettis. A lot of people thought that Cowboy won that fight at UFC 249, but um, he ended up losing 
be a decision. A lot of people believe that Cowboy won that. And then prior to that, he got that TKO in the first round that lost to the notorious Conor McGregor. And then prior to that, a TKO in the first round to Justin Gaethje. Prior to that, a TKO in the second round. Um, going into the third round against Tony Elkakui Ferguson. So his last win came at UFC Fight Night I Quinta versus Cowboy in May of 2019. May is actually a pretty significant month for these two, um, especially for Cowboy and their fights taking place in May. It doesn't really mean anything, but you know, if you like to play off that superstitious stuff when it comes to MMA, then maybe it's something to look into. Maybe May is going to be the lucky month for Cowboy. Um, his last win, May 2019. Joe Lozon's last win. 2019. But Cowboy has fought one, two, three, four, five, six more times. All losses, one draw. So one draw, five losses. You know, oh, five and one in his last six fights. Um, Lozon is, if we're going off last six fights, he is. He is two and four in his last six. So oh, five and one. Two and four. Both of these guys, veterans. Both of these guys at the tail end of their careers. I think we know that. Um, I think if Lozon wants to win this fight, he's got to come out heavy and hard in the first round. He's got to push Cowboy back, get in his face, land the one-two, land the left hook, push Cowboy up against the cage, try to work the elbows and knees from the clinch, but you got to hurt Cowboy in the first round, and you got to get him out of there. After the first round, Cowboy is going to take over in the second, take over in the third, Probably get a finish or easily get a decision. I don't see Lozon getting a decision here. If Lozon's going to win, he's got to bum rush him. He's got to push Cowboy back. Cowboy's usually a notoriously slow starter. So if you're going to get Cerrone out of there, you have to get him out of there early. Hurt him early like he did against Jonathan J.S.P. Pierce in his last fight. Hurt him with the 1-2. Hurt him with the left hook right hand. Jumped on him. Got him in that half Nelson and, um, you know, rain down ground and pound from the back. Had back mount, had his hooks in, but had him in the, the half Nelson, reaching around the head, controlling him, boom, just landing ground and pound. The thing I noticed about Lozon in that fight is he has, he had a lot of pop in his shots. His ground and pound was heavy. It was hard. And even the shot on the feet, it didn't look like anything super heavy, but it hurt Jonathan Pierce. It hurt him bad. It rocked him. It hurt him. And, you know, I think that's, you know, Lozon has some power. I would not bet on this fight. If you're betting, I would not bet on this fight at all. 100% I would not touch this fight with a 10-foot pole because they're both veterans. They're both at the tail end of his career, their careers, but you can't bank 100% on Cowboy. Um, if I was going to lean aside, I would lean Cowboy, but if you're betting, I would stay away from it because you can't because the first round is always going to be scary in a Cerrone fight. And if I'm breaking it down, if I'm going to pick a winner, I think that Cowboy survives the first round, I think Lozon hurts him early, but he's able to survive kind of like he did in the Nico Price fight. And then I think that um, he's going to just, you know, start landing his combination, start landing that lead uppercut, the one-two lead uppercut, right high kick, one-two high kick behind it, jab, jab, low kick, jab, right body kick, one-two lead high, one-two cross lead high kick, jab, you know, front kick to the body. I mean, just traditional cowboy Muay Thai combos. He's going to start putting them together. I think he's going to hurt Lozon on the feet, drop him, and get a TKO here. Um, I, I, I'm always worried to pick Cerrone now, especially at this point in his career. I be, would be worried to pick either guy. I wouldn't be mad at you for picking the Lozon side because I think odds-wise, I think it's pretty close. Cowboy probably is a favorite, but 
let's check it out. Um, let's see. We're going to go to Olivera versus Gaethje because they list the odds here. So we'll go um, Cowboys a minus 165 favorite to a plus 145 for Lozon. I like that line. I think it's good. Uh, Cerrone's last few fights, you know, haven't been great. Lozon hasn't fought in three years, almost three years. So, you know, I think it's basically a pick em, but I would lean more Cerrone. I would probably go 65-35 Cerrone. So I'm going to go Donald Cowboy Cerrone to survive an early onslaught in the first round, start landing those knees to the body, the front kicks, the one-two low kicks, you know, the combinations on the feet and getting a second-round TKO victory over Joe Lozon. So Cerrone to defeat Lozon via second-round TKO. Up next, we go to the featured bout of the evening in the UFC's lightweight division. You have the former lightweight title challenger, former Bellator lightweight champion, and the number five-ranked Iron Michael Chandler, who comes into this fight with a record of 22 victories, and seven defeats, going up against the number seven ranked, former interim lightweight champion, former lightweight who was on a 10-fight win streak or nine-fight win streak, somewhere around there, before he ran into Justin Gaethje, and Tony Elkakui Ferguson, who comes into this fight with a record of 26 victories and seven defeats. Um, Honestly, honestly, I'm excited for this fight. I think a lot of people are excited for this fight. You know, I think that people look and they see, oh my God, Tony Ferguson and Michael Chandler. This was a dream fight at one point, and it's still a great fight. It's a fight I'm definitely looking forward to. But, I mean, kind of like the last fight, I'm just going to come out and say it. This is a horrible fight for Tony Ferguson. And I, I, I guess I guess you can't say a horrible fight 100%. Because at the same time of this being a horribly dangerous fight, for Ferguson, I think at the top of the division, one through five, this is probably his most favorable matchup. And I know it's crazy. You're like, oh, well, you just said it was one of his most dangerous fights, but you're also saying it's one of his most favorable matchups. I think that there are going to be opportunities in this fight, if it gets to that point, where Ferguson can have some success potentially lock up a submission, maybe the Darce choke, take you to Darce City, snap down City, you know, one of Ferguson's best submissions, that Darce choke. I think there's opportunities for that against a heavy wrestler in Michael Chandler. I do think that, and and it, it wouldn't surprise me if Ferguson did get a submission here. But Ferguson was on that huge win streak. He went in, ran into Gaethje at UFC 249, and he did have some success. You know, he landed that uppercut up the middle, against, uh, what's his name? Sorry, I'm, I'm sorry for the cutoff, but he landed that uppercut up the middle against Gaethje after Gaethje landed that uppercut on Ferguson himself. He was able to kind of threw it like a bolo punch where he, he wound it up and then came up the middle with the uppercut. So wound it up and then came up kind of like a sickle, um, same type of, you know, the, the punch that Conor McGregor landed on Marcus Brimage, that bolo uppercut where you whip into the uppercut. Um, he landed that on Gaethje. He hurt him. After that, it was one-way traffic for Gaethje against Ferguson. Definitely the worst beating he took in his entire career. I mean, he was hitting him with jabs, that jab off the lead hand, the left hook, the one-two switch step 
into southpaw, cut him off, boom, land the left hook, the straight right down the middle. When he was landing the jabs towards the fourth and fifth round, every time he was hitting him, Ferguson was shaking his head. He was completely cut up. His face was all puffed up, bruised, bloody. He was popping him with the jab, just shaking his head. He loses that fight, right? He goes into the fight against Charles Oliveira at UFC 256. Gets completely dominated. Looks like a completely different fighter in that fight. Gets taken down, outgrappled, almost gets submitted with an arm bar. I mean, basically is ripping Ferguson's arm off, but Ferguson survives. Um, you know, gets on top, controls him, just out-wrestles him, outstrikes him on the feet, takes him down at will. 30-26, easy, three rounds to zero for the now lightweight champion, which we're going to talk about in a little bit, in Charles Oliveira over Ferguson. Then Ferguson goes into the fight against Benil Dariush. Looks like he's a little bit rejuvenated going in. He wasn't, he he got his hair back on, you know, in the Oliveira fight. He had shaved his head. He looked like he was ready to perform. Um, you know, Benil Dariush again just takes him down at will. Um, a little bit better of a performance from Ferguson here. Um, a little bit more of the scrambling coming out. He almost locked up the Darsh choke at two different points in the fight against Benil up against the cage. He just didn't have the right angle. He wasn't at the right position, but he was trying to scramble, trying to go into the Ashigarami, into the leg locks, got caught in a leg lock against Benil and was getting caught in a heel hook. And just every time he turned it, you heard Ferguson scream. That left leg was just completely shot. I think it was the left leg. Um, just got out-wrestled, out-grappled, out-struck on the feet, landing the straight left, landing the right hook. And it seemed like after the Gaethje fight, which you can't fault Ferguson for this, but after the Gaethje fight, it seemed like every time Ferguson got hit, he would overreact or he would flinch before the shot would come or he would kind of tense up and then get hit or be out of position and get hit. And Against Ferguson or against Oliveira and against Dariush, he got out grappled, out wrestled, you know. And I mean, we we can't go off MMA math, but Michael Chandler fought Justin Gaethje in a war, hurt him with that slap left hook into the right hand, the one two down the middle. He stunned Gaethje multiple times. Gaethje obviously dropped him in the in, at the end of the first round with that uppercut where he kind of shoulder rolls it and then comes up the middle with the uppercut. Up the middle, dropped um, Chandler. I believe it was in the first round. It could have been the second round. They went back and forth. They stood toe-to-toe. Gaethje took over in the third, but Chandler kind of walked them down. They went to war in that fight. I think Gaethje clearly won it. He got the knockdown. He um, was landing a lot of low kicks. He, he had more cardio to push in the late second and in the third round. Um, I think it's pretty evident that Gaethje won that fight. Just a cleaner striker, more combinations, um, had more gas in the tank to push the pace. But Chandler hurt him multiple times. The left hook into the right hand, the one-two down the middle. Landon low kicks on Gaethje, kind of going into a little low kick war. You know, shades of Edson Barbosa and, and Justin Gaethje without that right hook knockout as he circled off the cage, as he switched stance into southpaw to cut Barbosa off and caught him with that hook. Um, I believe it was a right hook. Let me, let me just check that out really quick. I don't want to say it wrong, so let me just pull it up. Here we go. We'll just mute it. It was a right hook, right? I'm pretty sure it was a right hook. He stepped forward and then caught him. Let's see. Up against the cage. I think he goes one, two. Boom, pops him with the jab. Steps in. Low kick. 
Here we go. Yeah, it's definitely, yep, right hand, step forward to cut off the, the exit of Barbosa into a southpaw, right hook. So one, two, step forward, boom, right hook off the exit, drops Barbosa, hurts him. Gaethje landed a lot of switch stance right hooks on uh, Michael Chandler. One of his best combinations for Gaethje, the uppercut up the middle is great. The low kicks are great. He's one of the best low kickers in MMA. But the one combination was the one-two step forward into southpaw land the right hook. Uh, for, for, uh, Michael Chandler actually landed that on Charles Oliveira a lot. He would go one-two, kind of square up his stance, boom, throw the right hook. One-two, step forward into southpaw, boom, land the left hook. So he'd switch stance. One-two, pause for a second, southpaw, boom, left hook. When it comes down to it, Ferguson is clearly at the tail end of his career. I said after that Gaethje fight that I wouldn't be surprised if Tony Ferguson never won a fight in the UFC again. So far, I've been right. He lost a dominant decision, almost got submitted by the champion in Oliveira. He lost a dominant decision, but looked a little bit better, even though it was still a dominant decision loss to Benil Dariush. Now he's going in against a knockout artist. Michael Chandler and Justin Gaethje, I believe, are the hardest hitters at 155 pounds, in my opinion. I think Poirier's right there. I think Connor's right there. I think Poirier's right there. But I think neck and neck are Gaethje and Chandler. Chandler rocked Gaethje. You know, Gaethje's been rocked before, but other than that Johnson fight and the, um, the uh, what's it called? The Poirier fight, he... He lost to Eddie Alvarez, but that was more to working the body first and then going up top, especially with that knee up the middle. But Chandler was able to hurt him with one or two shots, just one or two shots, not a combination. He would land a one-two or a hook into the cross, the hook to negate the power hand and then come down the middle with the right hand, one-two, three-two, and it would hurt him. Every time it was landing on the chin, he stumbled him. I mean, obviously, Gaethje survived, but Chandler's got speed and got power. And I know that Gaethje hits very hard. He dropped Chandler. Chandler didn't drop him. You know, the, the, the MMA math, it doesn't always work. But, I mean, Ferguson has been dominated in his last three fights. Um, last two, especially, in terms of the grappling. The first one, in terms of the striking, for sure, against Gaethje at 249. And I know Ferguson hasn't been knocked out. I know he's durable. I know that Gaethje fight took a lot out of him, but he got the a doctor stoppage or a referee stoppage, a TKO, but he didn't get knocked out cold. I think this is the fight where Tony Ferguson gets put on ice, and I'm 100% being honest here. I think that the speed of Michael Chandler on the feet is going to be a big problem for Tony. I think his defense, I think his he's a little bit gun-shy. I think he just isn't the same guy anymore. And it sucks because at one time he was one of the best lightweights in the world. It sucks. You know, on a huge win streak, people thought he was going to beat Khabib. I think you go and look at it now, and maybe if the fight happened at UFC 209, then Ferguson would have beat Khabib. But I, I think, you know, you know, going off what we know now, even though you can't judge a fight that was booked in the past on stuff that happened in the future and the present – or the present and the future, um, I, I I still think that Ferguson probably would have gotten dominated in that fight against Habib the more that I think about it. And, um, you know, realistically speaking, I just think Tony's not the same guy. I think we know that. Um, I picked against Ferguson against Oliveira, and I picked against him against Dariush. Um, a lot of people called me crazy for picking Dariush to beat Ferguson. A lot of people were on Ferguson there. And I said I didn't think that Ferguson would win another fight in the UFC you know, 
after his loss to Gaethje, I just think that took so much out of him. I think it just changed Ferguson as a fighter, and it just changed him as a human being. I think it was one of those fights and one of those beatings where it changes you. And I think we've seen how much it's changed Tony since that fight. And I think going in against a guy who, yes, you know, Chandler's lost. He's one and two in the UFC, lost to lost to Oliveira, who's now the champ, and then lost that war to Gaethje. But he hurt Gaethje. He went back and forth with Gaethje. He stood toe-to-toe. He did get beat pretty bad in that fight, but he still had his moments against Oliveira. He dropped him in the, the, in the first round. You know, he hurt him with the left hook, and then he dropped him with the the left hook switching into southpaw and then almost finished him in the first round. He got out of the scrambles, landed, finished the round on top. After they got back up, he dropped them, finished the round on top, got caught with a left hook in the second round. And then obviously a left hook up against the cage off the right hand, right hand, left hook, left hook, chased him down, left hook, got finished in the second round. That was a crazy fight at UFC 262. But I still think that the speed and just the one-shot knockout power that we know that Iron Michael Chandler possesses, I think this is where Ferguson gets put out. I know people are like, oh, Ferguson didn't get knocked out by Gaethje. Oh, he he got outgrappled by Oliveira and outgrappled by um, Darius, so he didn't really take a lot of damage. You know, but Gaethje, you know, I, I get it. But, you know, I think that if Chandler connects on the chin of Gaethje, or if Chandler connects on the chin of Ferguson, I think this is the one where he gets put out, and I'm going to predict that. So my pick for this fight is Iron Michael Chandler, the number five-ranked UFC lightweight, to defeat the number seven-ranked Tony El Kukui Ferguson via a first-round knockout. I think second round is probably the more intelligent option, but I think Chandler's going to come out heavy and come out hard. And I think just the speed of Michael Chandler with his hands. He's got some of the quickest hands in that 155-pound division. And the power this man possesses with just that pop-pop, the 1-2, the 3-2. I mean, it's speed, and it's a lot of power. And I know Tony hasn't been knocked out. He got TKO'd by Gaethje, but he hasn't been knocked out. Um, but I think this is the one, man. And I said I didn't think that Ferguson would win another fight in the UFC after that loss to Gaethje. And it's sad because I love Ferguson. He was one of my favorites at the at a time. But, you know, father time comes for everybody, no matter how good, how big, how bad you are. And I just think Ferguson's time has passed. And I think this is the one where he gets viciously knocked out. So, yeah, first round knockout victory for Michael Chandler. I think he catches him with that one, two, and just puts him out. I think it's a clean KO. Could be a TKO. I could see him dropping him, jumping on him, and getting the finish. But I think the one-two, not exactly like the Patricio Pitbull knockout, if you've seen that fight, which I'm sure a lot of you have, as um, Pitbull was going for the uppercut, and uh, Patricio was going for the uppercut, and then he caught him with the one-two. Boom, boom. One of the cleanest, sharpest one-twos you'll see in MMA. And, uh, I, yeah, I think Ferguson gets KO'd here. So, Iron Michael Chandler to defeat Tony El Kukui Ferguson via a first-round knockout. All right, so before we get into the predictions for the co-main event for the Strawweight Championship, I want to correct one thing that I said. I said that it was Patricio Pitbull that Michael Chandler knocked out in Bellator after he threw that uppercut and timed it with the 1-2. It was actually... Patricky Pitbull. Patricio Pitbull is the guy who beat Michael Chandler. I think they went back and forth, and then I think um, Patricio was the one who eventually would come out on top at the end of those, you know, 
the uh, series about Scott. I can't even talk today, but uh, I just wanted to correct that really quick. It was Patricky Pitbull, not Patricio Pitbull. They are brothers. So I just didn't want to say anything incorrectly, but we're going to get into the co-main event for UFC 274. And it is, I mean, the co-main and the main event are, you know, it's the Whitman special one coming in as a champion, one coming in as a challenger. And you've got the UFC strawweight champion, Rose Namajunas, defending her title against the number two ranked contender in the division. The woman who defeated Rose Namajunas at the Tough 20 finale to become the inaugural UFC strawweight champion in Carla Cookie Monster Esparza. So Namajunas versus Esparza, about eight years to the day, not to the day, but about eight years in the making. Rose coming in as the champion. Not even the same fighters for either of these women. I mean, they're completely different competitors in their mixed martial arts careers. But Namajunas versus Esparza. Let's get in to the breakdown. So when you look at the stats for this fight, I mean, we'll break it down. Records, Nami Yunus is 12-4 and four in her professional MMA career, but do not let that record fool you. She's one of the best women mixed martial artists and one of the best mixed martial artists on the planet. And then Asparza comes back with a record of 19 victories and six defeats. So seven more wins for Asparza, the number two ranked contender. 12 and 4, you know, so two more losses for Esparza, but seven more wins. I mean, you can't really compare there. Um, I think competition level for both women has been somewhat equal, but I think that towards more current times, Nami Yunus has definitely fought the more uh, competitive fights or more dangerous contenders, especially Zhang Wei Li and Joanna Yunjacek. And Joanna lost to Rose twice. Esparza got, you know, viciously. KO'd by, or I'm sorry, Joanna viciously KO'd Carla Esparza in the fight where she ended up winning the strawweight championship. So I believe that was Esparza's first title defense as well. She didn't really get the chance to defend the title. But I'm going to pull up this really quick. Just give me one second. We're going to pull it up for the Coleman event. I have the stats, but just recent fights for both women, I think, is important to discuss. So. Let's look at Carla Esparza. So on, on SureDog, it says she's 18 and 6. On the UFC website, it says she's 19 and 6. And then for Nama Yunus, it says 11 and 4. So the UFC website could be wrong. Nama Yunus, 11 wins, 4 losses. Carla Esparza, 18 victories, 6 defeats. So, you know, the, the UFC records are always, you know, different on the UFC website compared to other MMA media websites. So you got to just take it with a grain of salt and take it for what you can. But... Going off of SureDog, which I believe is currently updated, it's 11 wins and 4 defeats for the champion in Thug Rose Namajunas, and then 18 victories and 6 defeats for Carla Esparza. Esparza is on a 5-fight win streak. She's got a win over Verna Jandriboa, a win over Alexa Grasso, a win over Michelle Waterson, a win over Marina Rodriguez, and a most recent victory over Jan Zhaonan. So her most recent victory against Yan Zhao Nan, I mean, she dominated her. I know a lot of people picked Zhao Nan to win that fight. Zhao Nan would end up going on to battle Marina Rodriguez 
and losing that fight via decision. That fight was a little bit more back and forth in a three-round battle. But Esparza has victories over both women. And you know why? It's because of her world-class wrestling, her world-class grappling. Her ability to, you know, a lot of people when they shoot, a lot of fighters, I guess you should say, when they shoot a takedown, they'll shoot one takedown if they don't get it. You know, they'll back up and then they'll try to reshoot. With Esparza, she'll shoot, you stuff it, she'll turn the corner, try to get a single leg, you stuff that, she'll transition to the body lock, you work that out, she'll switch back to a double leg, you know, penetrate on the inside, go to the head on the inside, single. She'll just keep working, you know, two, three, four, five takedown attempts together until she gets you down and then can work from the top position, whether it's in half guard, whether it's in side control, whether it's from that vicious crucifix that she used against Yan Zhao Nan to just absolutely demolish her with elbows and punches from the top. Esparza has heavy, heavy ground impound, and I think that is definitely an area where the champion Rose Namajunas has to look out for. Now, the wrestling and grappling ability and the top pressure of Carla Cookie Monster Esparza is going to be a problem for the champion in Namajunas. But I believe the scrambling ability, the ability to regard, the ability to use feet on the hips, the ability to go for submissions, and just... Nami Yunus's overall activity off of her back is going to make it harder for Esparza to hold position. And if she holds position, it's going to make it harder for her to land ground and pound, land punches, land elbows, and work to different positions because of how scrambly and free-flowing the champion and Nami Yunus is off of her back. On the feet, it's night and day. I, I know Carla has worked on her striking. I know her striking has gotten better. She's got a decent one-two, a decent jab. But if you stay on the feet for too long against the champion in Nami Yunus, Nami Yunus is going to put you out. She's either going to knock you out like she did to Yoanna Yunjacek and Zhang Wei Li in their first fight, or she's just going to piece you up like the first Jessica Andrade fight. Um, I, I mean, I could see it being very similar where Esparza shoots takedowns, shoots takedowns, shoots takedowns. Um, she's definitely going to get Nami Yunus down. I, I would almost bet 100% that Esparza is going to get at least two takedowns. The, the real question is, can Nami Yunus work up to her feet? Can she get her hips in? Can she sh go for an armbar, go for a triangle choke, work up to the feet, try to get the wizard? Can she constantly be scrambling enough and working off of her back, threatening with submissions to the point where Esparza is going to be exhausted? She's going to just constantly be shooting, and she's going to run into shots on the feet. Um, let's break down the stats. You got... Both of them coming off a win, obviously. 5-5 five, five for Nami Yunus to 5-1 for Esparza. She's a lot shorter, which actually aids in the wrestler's ability because when you're fighting against a much taller, longer, rangier fighter, you're going to be closer to their hips because you're the shorter fighter. So it may be easier. It's going to be easier for you to penetrate in on those takedowns, get in on the hips, get to the body lock, work the inside and outside trips, You know, work a double leg, work a single leg. Because you're shorter, you're closer to the ground. Um, looking at the reach, it's a two-inch reach advantage for the champion in Namajunas. 65-inch reach to 63 inches for Carla Cookie Monster Esparza. Leg reach, 39.5-inch leg reach for Namajunas to 35-inch leg reach for Esparza. I see Namajunas using a lot of round kicks, but she's going to have to make sure that it's all set up behind either the fakes and feints with the hands or the little leg lift leg feint that she did before she threw that lead high kick against Zhang Wei Li, which put her out. A lot of fakes and feints, but that's what Nami Yunus is known for. She's one of the most technical fighters in MMA, one of the most technical women in MMA. Um, I think her and I would say that the most technical women's mixed martial artists would be Rose Nami Yunus, Valentina Shevchenko, 
and Joanna Yunjacek. I would put Marina Rodriguez in there as well because she's very technical when it comes to being on the feet. But mixing it up all together, I would say that it's Nami Yunus and Valentina. Number one and number two, interchangeable. In my opinion, I think Rose is a better fighter than Valentina, but I know they've worked together. I know they've trained together, but in my opinion, I think Rose is a better, more complete mixed martial artist. You can, you know, crap on me all you want, say what you want, but it is what it is. Now, the problem with this fight, or not the problem, but the area where Esparza is going to probably be able to take over is in the wrestling. When you look at win percentages, you've got 18% of wins coming by way of KO, for Nami Yunus, 21% for Esparza, 55% of wins coming by way of submission for the champion and Nami Yunus, 21% by submission for Esparza, and 27% of wins coming by way of decision for Nami Yunus to 58% of wins coming by way of decision for Esparza. So more of a submission finisher for Nami Yunus and more of a decision fighter for the challenger in the number two ranked Carla Cookie Monster Esparza, neck and neck with KO and TKO and submission finishes at 21%. Average fight time, again, neck and neck, 12 minutes, 39 seconds for the champion and Nami Yunus to 13 minutes and 43 seconds for the number two ranked Carla Esparza. Um, looking at significant strikes, you got 4.01 significant strikes landed per minute for the champion and Nami Yunus to 2.34 for Carla Esparza, you've got 41% significant strike accuracy for Nami Yunus to 43% for Esparza. So Esparza is actually a little bit more accurate with the significant strikes that she lands. When you look at, look at strikes absorbed per minute, Nami Yunus actually takes more. But it makes sense because of the wrestling-heavy approach that Esparza likes to implement for her game plan against all of the top-level women in that strawweight division. you got 3.88 significant er, strikes absorbed per minute for Nami Yunus to 2.75 strikes absorbed per minute for Carla Esparza. Defense, 59% striking defense for Nami Yunus to 53% defense for Esparza. So Nami Yunus is definitely more well-rounded on the feet. Like I said, it's night and day. If this fight stays on the feet, it's either going to be like the first round of the Andrade and Nami Yunus fight, their first fight at UFC 237, where she's just piecing her up with the one-two, the left hook, the straight right hand into the left hook, the one-two, the cross into the lead high kick. I mean, she's going to piece her up if it stays on the feet. There's no chance. Well, I don't want to say there's no chance, but it's a very slim chance that Esparza is able to even contend with the champion on the feet. Now, I mean, Nami Yunus is going to light her up if it stays in the striking range. If it stays on the feet, Nami Yunus is going to light her up all day. It's all day with that, baby. It's all day. <laughs> Shout out to Pat Barry. Looking at the grappling. Uh, it's, it's obviously going to be on the side of Esparza takedowns per 15 minute. You have 1.78 takedowns for Rose Nami Yunus to 3.53 takedowns per 15 minute fight for Carla Esparza takedown accuracy, 56% takedown accuracy for the champion in Rose Nami Yunus to 37% takedown accuracy for Carla Esparza takedown defense, 51% takedown defense for Nami Yunus to 48% takedown defense for Esparza. The takedown defense is what worries me in this fight, 100%. A 51% takedown defense rate is not the best. And normally if you shoot in, I mean, that's basically out of every two takedowns, you're going to get one on Nami Yunus. Now, Esparza doesn't have the best takedown defense either, but she's not usually getting taken down or, you know, people aren't usually trying to shoot takedowns on her because she's the heavy wrestler. She's the heavy chain wrestler chaining the takedowns together, getting in, closing the distance, just relentless with the pressure, with the takedowns, with the top control. 
and trying to work the ground and pound. Submission average, Nama Yunus is obviously higher in that regard at 0.69 submissions per 15-minute fight to 0.34 for the challenger in Carla Cookie Monster Esparza. Um, I'm going to be honest in this fight. I think that the first round is going to be a little bit of a feeling out process, but I think with Rose, her footwork, her movement, her lateral movement, the ability to switch from southpaw to orthodox and vice versa, her constant ability to move in and out on the feet, she's so good at dictating the range and controlling the range. Once she gets the reads on you, she's probably one of the best fighters at controlling range in all of mixed martial arts. And, and pair that with her footwork, pair that with her slick combination. She's a very slick striker, very clean technique. You wouldn't expect anything different under the tutelage of the wizard in Trevor Whitman, who we're obviously going to talk about when it comes to the main event. But Nami Yunus on the feet is going to piece up Esparza. It's just, can she stop the takedowns? And when she does get taken down, because she more than likely will get taken down at least once or twice in this fight, in my opinion, because of the great wrestler that Esparza is, can she work her way up to the feet? Can she scramble out of positions? Can she work her way back to guard? Can she get up on a hip? Can she sweep from half guard? Can she work her X guard? Can she kick off on the hips? Can she get back up to her feet? That's really the key in this fight because if Esparza can get the takedowns early and Rose can't get up, we're going to get a dominant decision or a late finish, maybe a submission like in their first fight at the Tough 20 finale. But both women are different fighters, but if she can't stop the takedown, Esparza is just going to keep doing that for 25 minutes. Now, can she do it for five rounds? I don't know. I don't think so. But could she easily do it for the first three and then maybe lose the fourth and the fifth? Yes, I think when it comes to cardio, pace, and pressure, I think Nama Yunus has the advantage in the cardio. I think she works well off of her back, and that's going to have the takedown attempts of Esparza, or at least the takedown attempts may be completed, but getting anything off from the top position is going to be a lot harder for Carla Esparza against a girl who's as active off of her back, who's as scrambly, and who, who moves so much off of her back in the champion in Nama Yunus. Honestly... I could see a finish here for the champion. I could see Nami Yunus catching her on the feet, dropping her and finishing her. Kind of like the Yoanny and Jacek finish where she won the strawweight title. I'm sorry, kind of like the finish where Yoana beat Esparza for the strawweight championship. But I think when it comes to who has evolved as a fighter since their first fight, I think Rose has evolved a million times over more than Carla Esparza. Carla's striking has gotten better. Her, re her range and distance control has gotten better, but she's still kind of the same fighter from the first time when she was on tough. She's all about the wrestling, all about shooting those takedowns, all about getting in on your hips and taking you down and working the ground and pound. She's a strong girl. She's a strong competitor. You know, the ground and pound against Rose is going to be a problem if she's able to get a lot of it off. I just don't necessarily see her getting a lot of it off. I do think she'll take down Rose. I definitely think we're going to get a couple takedowns in there, but I think Rose can work up to her feet, and I think she can do some damage off of her back, maybe lock up a triangle, lock up an arm bar. Um, I can definitely see her working a lot of submissions off of her back, and I'm sure she's drilled that a lot in camp. But I think she's going to shoot early in Esparza. She's going to come out and try to shoot early. I think she's going to get one or two takedowns, but but – Nami Yunus is going to work back up to the feet. On the feet, I think the fakes and feints, the jab, the 1-2 switch southpaw into the long left hook, the 1-2-3 rear low kick, the 2-3, 1-2-2-3 two, 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 rear low kick, getting your head off the center line, the teeps. Um, I think a lot of the kicks 
for Nami Yunus are going to be set up off of feints because you can't throw empty kicks against a girl who's looking to take you down. Nami Yunus got her kicks caught by Zhang Weili. She did get mounted by Zhang Weili at the end of the second or third round, I believe, in the end of the third round. And that's a little worrisome because you don't want Carla Esparza on top of you in the mount. I think that you know, Wei Li is a stronger competitor, but I think that Carla is a stronger wrestler. So it's it could be a decision for Carla, but in my opinion, I think Rose is just a way better competitor. I think she's a much better fighter than when the first two met. When they two first met, I think she's a way better competitor. I think she's going to stick her behind the jab, use those fakes and feints. The fakes are going to draw the shots out of Esparza, she's going to be shooting from a little bit across the cage. She's not going to be able to close the distance. She's going to be picked off with those long range, the one, two, the cross into the hook, the jab hook, right hand, the lead high kicks. And I think she's going to piece her up on the feet. Um, I don't know if I want to go with a finish, but I'm going to go with a finish. I'm going to go with a late TKO for Rose Nama Yunus. I'm going to go with a third round TKO victory and still for the champion in Thug Rose Namayunis over Carla Cookie Monster Esparza. I think she's going to get taken down, but I think she's going to work her way back up to the feet. She's going to work those submissions. I think it's going to tire out Carla towards the end of the second. Rose is going to start picking up on those the, the jabs, the one-twos, the, the constant switching stances. She's going to have Carla either shooting from too far out or reacting with, with the ability to take a shot, but she's going to hesitate, and Rose is going to pick her apart with the long-range punches, the one-twos, the two-threes, the cross-hook, the hook-cross. And I think eventually Rose is just going to time one of those one-twos down the middle. She's got a beautiful right hand. She's got a beautiful switch stance. Left hand as she switches to southpaw. I think she's going to piece her up kind of like the first Andrade fight before that finish and um, get the TKO. So my pick is Thug Rose Namajunas to defeat Carla Cookie Monster Esparza via a third-round TKO. Now, if you're betting this fight, the betting lines for the co-main event have Rose as a minus-195 favorite and Esparza as a plus-165 underdog. I wouldn't mind. I wouldn't blame anybody for trying to take the shot on Esparza, but she's not big enough of an underdog for me to tell you to take a shot on Esparza. Um, you could bet on a finish for Nami Yunus, Maybe a TKO or a KO, but I think running the money line, if you're betting on this fight, betting money line at minus 195 for Rose is the best bet for this fight. Don't bet it to be a finish. Don't bet it to be a submission. I could see it. I did pick her to win by a third round TKO, but she does go to the go the distance a lot. Um, I think she's a more evolved fighter. She gets better and better every time out, but I think betting the money line is the safest option for this fight. So if I was going to make a bet for this fight, I would bet Nami Yunus as the minus 195 favorite on the money line. All right, and now we move to the main event of the evening for the UFC lightweight championship of the world. You have the reigning defending UFC lightweight champion in Charles Dobronx Oliveira, who comes into this fight with a record of 32 victories and eight defeats, going up against the number one ranked lightweight contender in Justin the Highlight. Gaethje. Gaethje comes back with a record of 24 victories and three defeats. Let me just make sure. I believe 23 victories and three defeats. So again, the UFC website is off by one. So 
32 wins, 8 defeats for Charles Dobronx Oliveira. I believe Oliveira's last loss came in 2018 to Paul Felder. Let me check that out. Charles Oliveira. Pull it up. I believe it was 2018, right? Was it 2019? Oh, man, it was 2017 then. Yeah, so Charles Oliveira's last loss as a professional mixed martial artist came on December 2nd, 2017 at UFC 218 via TKO and due to ground and pound elbows from the top and the second round to Paul the Irish Dragon Felder. Since then, Oliveira has gone on a... Three, four, five, six... Seven, eight, nine, ten. So he is on a 10-fight win streak going into this fight at UFC 274 against Justin Gaethje. Now, Gaethje's last fight, he got a decision victory in one of the best fights of the year at UFC 268 in the main card opener against the guy who we just talked about for the featured bout of the evening in Iron Michael Chandler. He comes in, like I said, with a record of 23 victories and three defeats on a one-fight win streak. Prior to that, he lost to the former lightweight champion in his retirement bout in Habib, the Eagle, Nurmagomedov, where he improved to 29-0 with a second-round triangle choke submission over Gaethje. Then Gaethje came back, obviously, and fought Chandler and won in a decision in an all-out war. Oliveira's last few wins, he defeated Kevin Lee in one of the first, actually the first UFC fight with no crowd in the COVID era. He defeated Kevin Lee via a second round guillotine choke submission. I believe it was second, maybe the third round. And then he came in, fought Michael Chandler, beat Chandler via second round TKO after surviving a lot of adversity, getting dropped in that first round, getting hurt with a switch stance, left hook. Early and then uh, he Oliveira went to shoot the takedown and Chandler jumped on the guillotine, but Oliveira was able to survive. Chandler would then um, get his back taken by Oliveira, but he was able to explode out of the position as Oliveira went for an armbar, get back up to his feet, land some low kicks. The minute Oliveira got back up to the feet, they both exchanged shots. Chandler landed the one two. He went one two, brief pause, switch southpaw, boom, left hook, uh, hurt. Oliveira up against the cage, landed it again, boom, dropped him, jumped on him to try to get the finish, but Oliveira was moving his head left and right, kind of bobbing and weaving on his knees. He fell back to his back. Chandler jumped on him, tried to get the finish, but he survived. Then in the second round, they both exchanged right hands. They both came back with a left hook, but Oliveira's was just picture-perfect technique, clean, sharp technique, and boom, landed the left hook on the chin of Michael Chandler before Chandler's could get there. He ran him down, landed a one-two up against the cage, a left hook. Chandler walk was running against the cage, and boom, got caught with a left hook as he was kind of running away and got finished in the second round with that second-round TKO where Oliveira became the new UFC lightweight champion. Then he came in against Dustin the Diamond Poirier, who was coming off of two back-to-back -back victories over the notorious Conor McGregor at UFC 269 and defeated him via a... Third round rear naked choke submission, um, a standing rear naked choke, which I actually called 
a second round standing rear or it was a third round rear naked choke. Yeah, I believe I called a second round standing rear naked choke submission on my podcast for Oliveira to defeat Poirier. A lot of people underestimated Oliveira here. A lot of people thought that Poirier was going to run through him. And he, again, went through some adversity. He got clipped with a left hook, with a right hook early against Poirier, which um, stumbled him and knocked him off his feet. Then he got caught again, boom, with another right hook over the jab. I believe it was over the jab because they were opposite stance, orthodox versus southpaw, a right hook over the jab, and Oliveira's legs went out from under him. He went down. Poirier tried to jump on him. And uh, Oliveira actually tried to tie him up in like an omoplata style of position with the wrist control and controlling the ankle. And then Poirier tried to somersault out of it and um, uh, try to get up to his feet. But since Oliveira held on to the ankle of Poirier as he did that forward roll, he was able to control him and it turned into Oliveira being in the full guard of Poirier. And Oliveira dropped some bombs, good elbows, good punches from the guard. Heavy elbows from top from top position. From the full guard, Oliveira's got heavy ground and pound. Maybe he took a little bit of a uh, lesson from the elbows that the Irish Dragon Paul Felder was landing on him in their fight. But honestly, this is a great fight, and let's talk about the stats going into this main event. So both men obviously coming off of a win. 5'10 for the champion in Oliveira, 5'11 for Justin the Highlight Gaethje. A 74-inch reach for Oliveira to a 70-inch reach for Gaethje. Oliver is going to look to use that reach to the best of his ability. I think he's going to fight it very similar to the way he fought Poirier, but he's not going to stand in the pocket as much as he did against Poirier. Yes, Poirier's got power. Yes, Poirier's got knockout power. Yes, Poirier hurts him, hurt him, but if you stand in the pocket and walk forward against Gaethje the same way that you did against Poirier, Gaethje's going to knock you out. He's got one-shot knockout power. Poirier's got knockout power too, but Gaethje's got that one-hitter quitter. And I don't expect Oliveira to stand in the pocket for too long against Gaethje. Now, he, I didn't expect him to stand in the pocket and trade with Poirier either, but he did it, and he came out on top. Even though he got dropped and suffered a lot of damage, he still came out on top in the end. And then the reach, like I said, a four-inch reach advantage. He's going to want to use that reach. He's going to want to use the long jabs, use the crosses, kind of step off to his rear side as old, as Gaethje comes forward, try to land that uppercut as Gaethje throws a big shot. If he dips his head and throws a left hook, step off to your rear side, boom, land the uppercut. Step off, re rear uppercut, frame off right hand. He's very good at using that kind of shoulder roll uppercut up the middle and then framing off and following with the same side right hand. He used it against Kevin Lee. He used it against Poirier. He's very good at just circling off to his rear side, getting a slight angle to get out of the way of your long shots, whether it's an overhand, whether it's a straight, and then coming back on the angle where you're out of position and he's on that dominant angle, landing the straight, landing the hook, landing the one-two, landing the uppercut up the middle as you try to close the distance. He's very good at range. Good lead teep kick he showcased against... Michael Chandler, he's very Thai style. He started off as strictly Brazilian jiu-jitsu, but he's evolved into a complete mixed martial artist. And he's he's honestly one of the better strikers in this lightweight division. And he's got power. I mean, he knocked out Chandler. You know, he he's hurt people on the feet. He hurt Kevin Lee, which kind of caused him to shoot that takedown because he was piecing him up with the combinations. He's got a beautiful left hook, picture-perfect left hook. Gaethje, again, picture-perfect left hook. Both men 
have one of the best left hooks in the game. But you're not going to want to trade left hooks against a guy with the power and precision of a Justin Gaethje. It's just not going to be a smart idea. I expect Oliveira to try to work a lot of front kicks to the body, a lot of front snap kicks to the body. Um, one, two, lead, lifting the lead leg up to kind of close the distance and anticipate the rear low kick of Gaethje. Gaethje's one of the best low kickers in the game. He's got some of the most devastating low kicks, probably the best low kicks in all of mixed martial arts. So I expect Oliveira to be picking up that lead leg, either trying to evade the low, the low kicks completely or to just have it in position to check as Gaethje loads up for that low kick. I think that that tie style is going to work well for Oliveira. The only problem is when you start coming forward on Oliveira, he's gotten better with his head movement. He's gotten better at getting off on an angle and coming back with counters. He has gotten a lot better. But for a lot of the shots, he leaves his head on the center line. You don't really see Oliveira move his head left and right, slip off the center line, slip, slip, roll. He does do it. But when you blitz forward and really come forward with those shots, he doesn't really move his head off the center line. That's how he got caught with the counter hook of, of Poirier. That's how he got caught with the hook against Michael Chandler because he doesn't move his head off the center line. It's one, two, switch southpaw, boom, left hook. One, two, boom, right hook from Poirier over the jab of Oliveira, threw the jab out, boom, countered with the right hooks from the opposite stance. He gets caught with hooks a lot more than he gets hurt with straights. Um, you know, Poirier hurt him with the straight left hand a lot. It was harder to see for him. But his head movement is not the best. He's just good at pressuring and keeping his hands high. His hands high is a good thing. Working the body, fantastic body work. Good straight to the body. Good lead front kick to the body. Good rear front kick, good rear snap kick, really good teeps from Oliveira. I think we're going to see him use that a lot in this fight against Gaethje. But um, we'll talk about leg reach, 41-inch leg reach to a 40-inch leg reach for Gaethje. Win percentages, 28% of the wins coming by way of KO, TKO for Oliveira. 83% of wins coming by way of KO, TKO for the challenger in the number one ranked Justin Gaethje. 63% of the wins coming by way of submission for the champion in Oliveira. 4% of wins coming by way of sub for Gaethje. 9% by decision and 13% by decision for Gaethje. This is going to be a finish. Average fight time for both men, 7 minutes and 2 seconds for Oliveira. 10 minutes and 19 seconds for Justin Gaethje. Knockdown average per 15-minute fight. I think you can assume who's got a higher average. 0.44 for the champion in Oliveira to 0.65 for Justin Gaethje. Significant strikes, 3.44 significant strikes landed per minute for Oliveira to 7.5 significant strikes landed per minute for Gaethje. 53% significant strike accuracy for Oliveira to a 60% significant strike accuracy rate for Gaethje. Yes, Gaethje gets hit. Yes, his defense is not the best. It's gotten a lot better. His footwork, his movement, his head movement, his counters, they've all gotten so much better under Trevor Whitman. But not only does Gaethje land more per minute, he's more accurate with the significant strikes than is Oliveira. When you look at strikes absorbed per minute, this is where the big difference is. The defense for Oliveira is a lot better um, than Gaethje. 3.13 strikes absorbed per minute for Oliveira to 7.81 strikes absorbed per minute for Gaethje. Gaethje's there to get hit. He likes to get into a, get into wars. I think a lot of this stat is based off his early UFC career. After the Ferguson fight, going into the Khabib fight, you know, going into the fight against Chandler. He did get hit a lot against Chandler, but 
His his defense was on point in the Gaethje fight or the Ferguson fight, aside from getting hit with that bolo uppercut, which we talked about earlier when we broke down Chandler versus Ferguson. Um, but, you know, Gaethje does get hit a lot. Uh, and Oliveira is definitely better when it comes to his defense on the feet. Defense overall, though, is on the side of Gaethje, but you got to be, you got to look at the strikes absorbed per minute. Gaethje takes a lot more shots than Oliveira, but defense, 52% striking defense for Oliveira to 55% striking defense for Justin Gaethje. Now, grappling. This is where if Gaethje gets taken down by Oliveira, he's going to get submitted. 100%. It's not even a question of will he get submitted. It's when he will get submitted. If he gets taken down or if he overextends on a shot and Chandler, or I'm sorry, and Oliveira takes his back. I mean, it's, he got, the minute he hit the ground with Habib, he was a fish out of water. Habib and Oliveira, they're different grapplers. I think Habib is more relentless with the ground and pound, more relentless with the top pressure and, you know, will kind of wait for the submission to come before he like outworks you on the ground with the ground and pound. Oliveira, the minute he gets you to the ground, he's looking for submissions. He's looking for leg locks. He's looking to work the X guard, looking to work the Ashigarami for the leg locks, looking to work Omoplata, switch Omoplata to armbar, switch Omoplata into armbar, into triangle choke, switch the triangle into the armbar. He's constantly chaining submission attempts together. If it goes on the ground, if, if Oliveira takes Gaethje down, if Oliveira takes Gaethje's back, it's 100%. 98%, I'll say, that Oliver is going to submit him. It, it's just a different level when it comes to being on the ground. But Gaethje's distance management has gotten a lot better. His ability to control the range on the feet has gotten a lot better. But at the same time, Oliver is striking his Thai style of stance, his Muay Thai heavy style of striking with the knees, with the elbows, with the shoulder roll into the uppercut, into the right hand off the same side, the beautiful left hooks, the teeps. The front kick to the face, I mean, there he his striking has gotten a lot better as well. So, you know, you can't say that it, in the fighter's strengths, which obviously Oliveira's strength is the, the Brazilian jiu-jitsu, the takedowns, the back control, the submissions, Gaethje's a fish out of water. In Gaethje's strengths, which is standing on the feet, you know, going to war, a stand-up battle, and kickboxing range, Oliveira is not a fish out of water, but the power is going to be a big problem. So in Gaethje's strengths, I think Oliveira can hang a lot more with Gaethje in his strong areas, but Gaethje cannot hang in the strong areas that Oliveira possesses in terms of the takedowns, the back control, working for the rear naked choke, working for the arm bars, working for the darces, working for the anacondas. If I said if, if Oliveira takes the back of Gaethje, the, the fight's over, and it doesn't matter when it is, first, second, third round, it's over. And that's just how it is. If he gets him down, if he takes him down, if he takes his back, if he gets top position and works the submissions, the fight's over 100%. And that's just how it's going to be. That's just how it's going to be. And I think a lot of people know that. I don't think I'm saying anything that people don't understand. But the thing that worries me is the inability of Oliveira to move his head off the center line. And I think Gaethje's going to come out calm and calculated in the first round, but also put a lot of pressure on Oliveira. I think he's going to come forward. I think he's going to be obviously calm and calculated because you can't overextend on a lot of your punches. You can't overextend and allow for Oliveira to close the distance, shoot the takedown and take your back from the body lock. You can't overextend 
and leave your neck out there for Oliveira to snatch up an anaconda, to snatch up a darts choke. It's just dangerous, a dangerous game. You know, Oliveira really likes to keep that lead leg high. You see him, you know, light on the lead leg tie style. Doing that a lot against Gaethje, who's very good at switching his stances. He, he used it very well against just or against Tony Ferguson. Constantly, one, two, switch, southpaw, boom, left hook. One, two, switch, southpaw, boom, straight left hand. One, two, switch, southpaw worked well for Chandler against Oliveira. The one, two, brief pause, boom, left hook. The minute he landed that, it was over. And I know that Gaethje is not as fast as Chandler. I think the speed along with the power was a big weapon. But I do think he hits just as hard, if not harder. And he has one of a he has a beautiful left hook. If Gaethje connects with that left hook on the chin of Oliveira, it's gonna be over. I mean, that's just that's just his best punch is the left hook. Oliveira's best punch is also the left hook. But Gaethje's speed with that left hook and the ability to set it up off of that stance switch, pairing it with the low kicks, I think we're going to see Gaethje use some low kicks but not go overboard with it because obviously, like we said, kind of with the co-main event with Esparza and Nami Yunus, you can't throw a lot of those low kicks against a world-class Brazilian jiu-jitsu artist and a grappler in Oliveira because he can time the, the low kick, shoot the takedown, take your back, and work to set up a submission. But honestly, when it comes down to it, I mean, I don't even want to make a pick for this fight. That, that's how close I think this fight can be. And in the areas where it's just, it's so hard to pick. And I was riding Oliveira all week and then I switched and I was going to go with Gaethje and I've been going back and forth. But honestly, when it comes down to it, I think that first, those first two rounds, I just don't think Oliveira can take the power that Gaethje possesses. I think that that stance switch, right hand into southpaw, disguise the stance switch with the right hand into southpaw, and then boom, bang that left hook. I think that left hook is going to be open. We've seen Oliveira open to the stance switch combinations against Michael Chandler. It hurt him every time he switched southpaw or briefly switched and squared up his stance. That left hook was causing Oliveira a lot of problems. He got hurt real bad with the check right hook of Dustin Poirier, but honestly that Chandler fight opened my eyes a lot in breaking down this fight. And I just don't think that he's going to be able to survive that first round against Gaethje. And I'm going with Ann new. I'm going with the underdog. I'm going with the number one ranked Justin, the highlight Gaethje to defeat Charles Dobronx Oliveira via a first round knockout, catching him with that stance switch left hook. Or just a left hook in general. It doesn't even have to be a stance switch, but I think switching stance, getting the outside foot and cutting that angle is where he's going to be able to line up that power. And Gaethje's got one of the best left hooks in the game. And Oliveira's been able to take damage and survive, but I don't think Gaethje's going to play it, play a dumb game. If he drops him, he's going to let him back up. And I just think that left hook's going to be too much for Oliveira. It's going to crack him on the chin, drop him, Actually, I think it's going to be a clean KO, not even a TKO. He's going to land that left hook on Oliveira and put him out. So my pick is the number one ranked Justin, the highlight Gaethje, to defeat the UFC lightweight champion in Charles Dobronx Oliveira and become the new reigning defending UFC lightweight champion of the world. 
All right, that's it for my preview predictions and analysis for UFC 274, Oliveira versus Gaethje. The podcast is available anywhere you can get your audio podcast. That includes Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Anchor, Stitcher, Breaker, and many, many more. This podcast will be uploaded to YouTube in the coming days, probably tomorrow at the earliest. I'll have it uploaded with edits and, you know, video and pictures and everything to make it look a little bit better than just listening to it with the audio. Please leave your a review for this podcast anywhere you can. Any review, any chance you can get to promote the Touch Em Up podcast on social media, promote it on YouTube, promote it on Instagram, promote it on Twitter, promote it on Snapchat, promote it on Facebook, promote it in your Facebook groups, anywhere you can go to promote the Touch Em Up podcast, do me a favor and get this out because I believe we have one of the most detailed and analytical and smartest MMA podcasts in the world. And I'm here to prove it. And I'm not going to stop until I do. So I'm your host, Double M. This has been UFC 274, Oliveira versus Gaethje preview, predictions and analysis. And I'm out. Have a good night, everybody. All right.